Hello everyone and welcome to Sam Talks Technology, your weekly guide about all things tech and business with Sam Sethi. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sam Talks Technology. Today I'm joined by Faisal Garia. He's the CEO of Blipper. Faisal, how are you? All good, thanks Sam. How are you? Very well. Now, I said you're the CEO of Blipper. Can you tell me what is Blipper? Blipper is a technology company that's been around since 2011 and I've got the privilege of being the CEO. The the business essentially does two things. We are a technology platform that allows content creators to build and author very sophisticated through to very simple AR experiences using a a tool called Blip Builder, uh, which is a drag and drop tool. And we are a a studio for AR creative. You've come into Blipper recently as CEO. It's a turnaround that you're working on. So when Blipper first came out, everyone was talking about it. What happened? Was it too early for Blipper? Exactly. Look, as you said, Blipper has been an innovator for nearly a decade now. And not only has it innovated in the augmented reality space, but it was an innovator in, in computer vision, AI, machine learning, spatial listening. They were a very experienced engineering team that were experienced across a number of technologies. Back in 2011, when Rish and the team first built the the first AR experiences, we were still using 2.5G networks and the most sophisticated phone you could buy was an iPhone 3. Um, So the ecosystem wasn't there for AR. Fast forward nine years and of course things are, are, are very different. You say things are very different. What does that mean for AR? Are the building blocks now in place to make AR the the next breakthrough platform? Because I, as a techie, have been wanting AR for a number of years. I can see the potential. I can see the value proposition. I should be able to, with whatever mechanism, be able to look at an object and get metadata on it or information around it. But I don't seem to find that. Yeah, there's use cases of walking around museums and there's the fun cases, Snapchat as an example. But what is missing, in your opinion, that's making it not jump into the mainstream from being a techie's playground right now? It's a good question because, as I said, Blipper pioneered AR back in, in, in 2011. And back then, clearly the ecosystem wasn't there. But things are changing. And in the last nine years, Blipper on its own has done nearly 20,000 AR experiences. And in that time, everyone from Unilever through to Audi and Porsche have built uh, interesting, compelling AR experiences, sometimes for marketing, sometimes for advertising. It might be for learning and development or education or for for e-commerce. So I I think AR is starting to find its feet But what will make it break out, and I think that's your question, there's a number of plate tectonics, if you like, that are coming together. Uh, I think we're we're seeing the imminent arrival of of 5G networks, uh, which will put AR on on steroids uh, and open up the mass adoption of AR. We're also seeing some of the, the other players in the ecosystem, people like Android and iOS, launch AR Kit and AR Core, which are the tech stacks for mobile phones. And ever since iOS 11, uh, every uh, iPhone has been an AR phone. Uh, and ever since a- AR Core launched, every Android phone has been an AR phone, which now means that there are over 4 billion phones globally which have the uh, AR capability I- inside. We're also seeing Google a couple of weeks ago launch AR as part of the native mobile uh, search capability. So I think over the next couple of years, we'll see every mobile website needing to have uh, AR and 3D capability in order to be indexed by by Google. Wow, that will be massive. We're seeing it coming and, and there's a reason for that. It's because as we move from AR being the principal form factor through which we consume AR to it being wearables, at least for a certain part of the population, it's going to have to be easier to trigger uh, and that will probably be through something like spectacles. And I think spectacles are going to be interesting when they get here, when they become mass market. But in the meantime, 4 billion smartphones is where we're concentrating our efforts at the moment. You mentioned the rollout of 5G. Is that just a pure speed requirement because of the 
AR requirement for data or is there another benefit to 5G? Um, I think there's multiple things. I think from the point of view of a network operator, if you're trying to explain to a, a customer why they should upgrade from 4G to 5G, selling speed or, or latency or throughput is not really a compelling... No, because it's good enough right now. But also t- telling an end consumer that 5G has 10 times less latency than 4G, that's not selling a benefit. When you can see uh, a holographic image of, of the person that you're calling in, in your living room, that, that's quite compelling. And I think you, you can start to see, uh, even in the UK, telcos experimenting with that. I don't know if you, if you watched the BAFTAs uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yep. But the presenter, Maya Jama, was wearing the first AR dress. And uh, it was sponsored by EE. And if you held up your, your EE phone on a 5G network, you saw the dress and it moved around and it was a fully interactive dress. It was quite amazing to watch that and this was done live. So I think that there's going to be some interesting and fun AR experiences, but I think we're also starting to see some really smart applications that, that people find give them rich information. And that might be as simple as we're working with a shampoo uh, company that that you can point your, your phone at the shampoo and at your head. It tells you if that's the right shampoo for your hair. See, that's the sort of product that I think I've been waiting for, that raison d'etre to actually get my phone pointed at an object and get some value. I've done the pointing it at the planets that Blipper has an example. And I did that this morning. I was looking around my room and great, there's Saturn and I click on it. But it's like, okay, I've done it. I've seen the object floating in my room done it doesn't give me that compelling must do this constantly regularly habitually but if you start to see product placement and with they are built in that i think could be really interesting certainly on the theme of procter and gamble and and we're also working with a number of cpg companies where you uh, point your your phone uh, at the product it could be at at the shelf it could be at, at home and the recipes for that product come uh, on your phone. And those are, those are nice. I think some of the more interesting B2B applications are probably worth exploring as well. I, I don't know if you've ever had a boiler engineer come to your house and you know, to service or repair. And that's if they recognize and they know how to fix that boiler. But if, if, if the engineer holds up the phone and we're able to recognize using computer vision that boiler and then through AR, deliver the instructions to the engineer to how to service or fix that boiler. Now we're starting to see the new applications, which are, I, I think are more around learning and development, around training, as well as some of the other things that we're working on with, with Pearson in education, with SuperDry in, in e-commerce. So there's a, the core of the business, I, I think, still, uh, and at least for a while, will be marketing and advertising because We've got a rich heritage over nine years of working with brands and agencies building interesting calls to action um, that can show uh, engagement uh, and click-through rates. But uh, where we are today and the the platform that we're building building today is is a true AR platform which is extensible across uh, education, learning and development, uh, training, e-commerce, as well as uh, marketing and advertising. So products that you described and the platform that they built on, how difficult is it to build? Is it a time thing? Do you build these? Do you outsource it to agencies? Is it a third-party channel? How are these products going to get built and uh, uh, what's the complexity required in building them? As I said earlier, we have a tool called Blip Builder, which is our AR authoring and create creation tool that allows uh, a license holder to to drag and drop. It's a graphical user interface uh, and it's pulling a lot of the AR technologies that we had in the previous version of of Blipper together in a really simple, robust, easy to use tool. What that means is that we have people of school age, nine and 10, building simple AR experiences through to people at Martins College, building really exciting AR experiences through to agencies and brands who rather than relying on uh, some of the gaming engines that they've used uh, historically for building AR, and those are huge pieces of software for which an AR was only part of what they did uh, and requires a creative technologist to build an AR experience. 
what Blip Builder is, it's designed for purpose. We're a simple, easy to use AR creation platform. Uh, brands license that, agencies license that, some individuals license it. I think we've got about 60,000 individuals that build AR experiences on Blip Builder. So if you're an agency or a brand and you want to license the platform, we do that and they don't require our, our help. They just license the platform. Uh, there are other uh, brands and other agencies that come to us with a brief and like other studios uh, that license our, our software, we use our own software to build their uh, AR experiences according to, the, to their brief. In the case of something um, like an AR ad that you might see on your mobile phone, um, that might take two days to build. Imagine we're, we're doing something for Coachella and you can create a portal where you could step into Coachella from your home anywhere in the world. Uh, that might take us a couple of weeks. Uh, now, what's troubling you most with Blipper? What is the thing that keeps you awake at night in terms of, if I could turn this switch on, this is what's going to make Blipper the next big thing again? I think the biggest issue that that I as a CEO have today is we are seeing the top of the interest in the, in the platform surge again. I think it's a combination of you know, Blipper being well-established as a AR platform uh, for many, many years with brands and agencies all around the world. Um, and they're excited that the platform uh, is available again. We have been able to do uh, some new, very exciting things. We've done away with the app, so all of our experiences are now available in, in the web uh, with no app, app required. So we're getting a lot of in, incoming. And so what troubles me is we're still quite a small team. And what I need to do is do what we did at Skype and, and, and Spotify and ramp up very quickly. Uh, in a COVID situation where you can't meet people, hiring people and scaling uh, is, is you know, creates next layer of difficulty which we have not seen before we need to put people on the ground um, in the US in Canada in Australia in Singapore in, in Hong Kong and ideally I'd love to meet those people you know, in order in order to make sure that the culture the fit is, is is right so in order to scale you need to be well funded how are you in the funding situation are you fully funded and got a roadmap of several years or is it you know a constant battle that all CEOs have. Um, we're, we're very lucky from a funding point of view that the, the, the business was acquired by Candy Capital, who had invested previously in, in, in Blipper as well. They'd invested over $30 million in, in Series C and Series D of the previous version of Blipper. Uh, and Candy Capital bought the assets and are, are now the, the largest owners and continue to fund the business. But you know, clearly having backed the business quite seriously in the past. This is, we are building this business and the expectation is to build a very large business and, and Candy Capital are standing behind the business to help us to grow that because the vision is to grow this into a very large business again. Brilliant. I interviewed Matt's recently from 6D.ai who got sold to Niantic, the makers of Pokemon. Did Pokemon help bring back the sort of excitement around AR? Because it seemed to be like with AI, for example, it was the AI freeze they all talked about. And then we're all back into the world of AI and machine learning. Was Pokemon Go the driver that got us all back excited again? I, no, I think for a certain type of a AR, it, yeah, it, it certainly helped. And the fact that Pokemon has been adopted so quickly, I, I think it, it went from but I, I forget the, the, the speed of the adoption, Sam, but I think it's been the, the fastest adopted technology. I think it got to, to a million users faster than WhatsApp. Right. Uh, or was it, is it either a million or a hundred million? I don't remember which one it is. I'll look it up for you. Yeah. So that helped, but po Pokemon was a singular use case that around gaming. And what I'm interested in is building a platform that's extensible, not just across gaming, but across education, learning, e-commerce, e advertising, training. And, and Poker was great in terms of you know, bringing people's attention to AR. But I think we need some more of those 
use cases, if you like, to, to create the breakout that you mentioned earlier. Now, one of the biggest challenges, I, I used to be involved with Netscape and I was in the browser walls with Microsoft and, and it was the HTML standard. Is there a standard for AR or are we going to see the AR version of Blipper and the AR version of Niantic and Magic Leap and HoloLens and Apple clearly are going to come out with something because they've just been uh, rumored to bring out uh, their glasses shortly? So are we in a a world of walled gardens, AR, or is there a a universal standard that you're all applying to? A very smart question, and I guess you've seen it in the browser space. So there is something interesting happening. If you're trying to create uh, AR today in Snap, you'll probably use SnapLens. And if you're trying to build uh, AR for Facebook, you'll probably use, use Spark. And, and TikTok have just launched branded effects. And what we're trying to do uh, at Blipper is to say, those are great distribution outlets, and we're not a distribution company. What we are is a content creation company. And so what we're doing is trying to create a platform where authors, advertisers, agencies can create the content once and distribute anywhere over the web. So we're not concerned with the walled gardens that are that uh, some of these distribution companies are building and the platforms they're building specifically for their walled garden. Our mission here is to democratize AR and for AR to be available across any platform uh, on the web. So whether you're using an Android phone or an iOS phone, whether you're consuming AR on, on, on Snap, on Google, or by blipping a, a newspaper, we're, we're trying to be the one platform that allows distribution to anywhere on the web. Interesting you use the verb blipping. Is that what we're going to ha- try and get to Google is to search, to Hoover is to vacuum? Are we going to have to blip is to AR? Um, I don't know yet. I think we still are juggling with our own lexicon in, in, internally as well. And, and sometimes it's blipping and sometimes it, it's snapping and it, it changes. We're only you know seven months old, so... Uh, I'm sure we'll find uh, appropriate, appropriate lexicon in time. Good. Now, look, you've had an amazing career um, looking at your LinkedIn, which is why I love doing interviews, because you think you're somebody and then you look at their LinkedIn, because we don't all go around looking at each other's LinkedIn's. Um, and you go, really? I never knew. And I mean, you and I met when you were you know, GM for Skype, um, but obviously you're a non-exec director at Superdry, You've done other things that are really interesting with Ofcom. So let's just investigate some of those things because I think it's really interesting to understand you as a person, really. You started off doing your MBA in Spain. Now, most people don't go to Spain to do an MBA. That's a start. And and for those who can't see you, you're a fellow Indian. That is not a natural home for us. Let's start off with, hmm, let's think what language we can use. Spanish, that's a good one. So how did that come about? How did that come about? I finished my uh, undergrad a little early, and I does that mean you didn't finish it? No, I, I did finish. Oh, you finished it early. You were just clever. <laughs> Sorry, let's try to work out. <laughs> um, and I was offered a, a job by Arthur Anderson to to start, but they they said you've got to come back uh, when you're 21, like everybody else. And they had a, a, a scholars program, and they said here's 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 some money, go and travel the world for a year come back next year. This was back in the mid-90s. So I came back home uh, and said to my mum, I'm going to travel around the world for a year and I've got a great job when I come back. And being a typical uh, Asian mother, she said, there's no son of mine going to go and lie around on a beach cruise. Better find something to do. Well, that's only because she couldn't brag and boast like all Indian mothers. That's what it is. I remember telling my mother, because I was an army officer, and she was proud of that. And then I said I was going to be an entrepreneur. She didn't know what one was, so she couldn't brag about what, what's an entrepreneur. Well, she certainly couldn't brag about her son you know, bumming around on a beach somewhere. <laughs> so, so the compromise was I could go somewhere sunny and, and, and warm if I studied. And so I applied to a number of universities. I chose Spain and, uh, and decided to do an undergrad at the University of Cordoba in Andalusia. Uh, which is where I also learnt Spanish. I was uh, going to say, those, that rolling of the tongue was looking very good there. I've, I've spent five years now living in Spain, all, all told, so uh, right. between the undergrad and my MBA. So I went back to 
to Spain. I have an ongoing love affair with Spain, and I at some point I'd, I'd love that for that to be home again. That's how I did an undergrad in, in Spain, and then when I did my MBA, I went back to Spain, but, but to Barcelona. Which is beautiful. I love Barcelona. So how did you get into Ofcom? And I've got a couple of related questions to that, but how did you get into Ofcom, which seems like an odd thing to go from Arthur Anderson to Ofcom? It wasn't by design, obviously. I was finishing up my, my MBA at, at ESA, and that was summer of 2003. So when I was thinking about coming back to London and going back into work, I was looking and it was 2002. So you know, essentially just after the, the tech bubble had burst. Yep. And the typical route for an MBA back then was probably into a bank or into a consultancy. I'd been at a consultancy, you know, wasn't necessarily keen on going back and had a number of conversations with an old client of mine, uh, a gentleman called Ed Richards, who was the controller of strategy at the BBC when I was con- consulting and in the two years that I'd been at business school, he'd gone on to work for Tony Blair as his TMT advisor. He wrote the Communications Act, which created the converged regulator Ofcom. And he became the COO of Ofcom. And he said to me, look, if you're coming back, I'd love to get the band back together again. Come and work for me at Ofcom. I need a strategist. And you'll have the opportunity to work with all of the telcos, all, all of the media companies, that, that, you know, that as a consultant, you would love to work for. But in this, working at Ofcom, you'll have a great deal of exposure to them. And we've got some really interesting projects coming up. How about it? And coming back from Barcelona, the opportunity to work and start Ofcom, because Ofcom was, was created on December the 29th of 2003. So in essence, it was one of the first startups that I did. It was a great opportunity to, to work with Ed, who's a, is a fantastic in intellect and, and in a space which I, media, tele, telecoms, communication, which I found thoroughly interesting. Now, it says you, you were involved in the Premier League football rights. What were you doing? I, before I ask that, what football team do you support? I don't. How can you do that and not support a football team? This was a... Econometrics and accounting exercise. We were asked by the uh, by the European Commission to investigate Sky's monopoly um, of Premiership League football, um, and uh, part of part of what we did, as a result of the investigation, was to create a new series of packages, including catch-up rights and mobile rights uh, and video rights, to create more packages and to create competition I, I think what would be interesting i don't know if you can put your hat back on and just cast your mind back amazon this year got into uh, broadcasting football matches over boxing day and and, and new years the facebook in the u.s has famously said they're going to get into nfl google has sort of hinted that it might do that as well if you were still in ofcom how would you see this landscape changing it, it does feel like sky has a monopoly on it i know bt are playing at the edges but is this going to be a sea change? Are we going to see the American companies come in and the likes of Sky and BT just being outbid? Or will Ofcom have teeth to prevent this happening? Or does it not care? Actually, I think to the extent that football and, and sport is a reason why people subscribe to what otherwise are, are commodity access technologies, it seems to me as if the more competition there is for those users, the better. And if, if there are more ways of people to consume the content that they want, um, that's better for the end consumer. And I look forward to a time when uh, you're not forced to, to buy a, a package um, uh, because you want that particular content and disaggregating the bearer from the content, I think, is, a, is probably a force for good, at least for the consumer. And there's a lot of challenges going on in football. No crowds for possibly 12 months, maybe longer. There's obviously the international market, which is proving much more lucrative to the Premier League. Uh, I think the big talk right now is a Netflix of football, which goes back to your point, where I can watch that match and that match. I don't have to buy the whole package and I can watch it when I want in terms of there isn't a 3pm limit on not being able to watch it live. And, and I think the other the other side of that is the type of content. So there should, if there was an increased content available on their mobile phone, on catch-up, 
available for streaming. There are so many ways that people consume content t- today. And for that to be controlled um, and monopolized by one access provider, it does the consumer a disadvantage. And if you're Liverpool and you're a player or the club, you want to generate income for the club in as many different ways as possible. And for your football and your players to be able to be seen and enjoyed wherever they are in the world. And if consumers want to consume two-minute clips or 30-minute clips or stream football, that seems to me as if the more competition there is from people that are willing to bid for different rights, the, the more that this content will be consumed, which is good for everybody. Yeah, I think the rights are up in in less than 18 months. And I think there's a massive issue that's looming. No crowd, tighter budgets because of COVID. I think football is going to have to re realign its golden pockets maybe, but we'll see. Now, you moved on from there to where I think I first met you, which was being GM of Skype Europe. Now, how did you come about that role? I mean, that seems an odd thing. Was it the Ofcom link that, that brought it about? It was. So whilst I was at, at Ofcom, uh, we had to make a, uh, a recommendation to, to DCMS about regulate voice over IP. And so for about a year, I was meeting um, some of these very early voice over IP companies, understanding the, the technology and trying to understand to what extent they were IT companies or they were digital companies or indeed telcos so that we could figure out how to, to regulate them. And I spent about a year looking at this and meeting with them. And my recommendation at the end of of that period of meeting everyone from Nicholas Sendstrom at at, at Skype to Jeffrey Citroen at at Vonage was that this was a very, very early in in voice over IP and we should follow uh, what a number of other uh, regulators had, had done around the world and forbear from regulation and to allow the technology to grow before we figure out whether regulation was appropriate. And during that, that process, uh, as I said, I got to meet uh, a lot of these companies. And as soon as DCMS announced that we would be forbearing from regulations, we wouldn't re- regulate voice over IP, Vonage, Skype, Net2Phone as, as telcos and, make, uh, and make, make them comply with some of the requirements of a, of a, of a telco, like providing uh, telephone boxes or providing... And 99.9999% up uptime and all of those requirements. I got a couple of phone calls from some of the founders that I'd been working with, and I rem- remember one of them in particular, where the chairman and the CEO said, "We'd like you to become to jump from being a gamekeeper to come and help us poach." And uh, I had a number of conversations, and uh, very luckily for me, now I-, I remember talking with with very early Skype when it was a minimal viable product and there was a small team based in Soho I remember thinking if I'm ever going to do this this is the the time to do it and this is the team they were a a very very smart engineering team and and they showed me the product and it was quite different for example from Vonage uh, where Vonage looked like a regular phone this was calling through a PC which we now do you know regularly and we're We're doing now doing a zoom call but but back then trying to explain to, to people that the future of of telephony was through their computer seemed slightly strange but i, I was very- oh, i don't know michael j fox in back to the future with his tv wall I, we were all waiting for it it was just we didn't know how it was going to turn out it- indeed now skype itself had a, an interesting history it started off as kazoo a music service and then pivoted into i, I guess it was the underlying peer-to-peer network that, 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 is that-, that correct that, 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 yes, so there was a Kazar. Um, let's get it right, Mr. Sethi. <laughs> was founded by uh, Nick, Nicholas Centrum and Yanis. And uh, the underlying technology uh, behind uh, Kazar was, was jolted. The peer to peer technology formed the, the uh, underpinnings of, of the peer to peer distributed system uh, for, for telecommunications that became Skype. So, one of the things I said to you at the beginning of this uh, conversation offline was the COVID experience that we've all gone through. <clears throat> I never expected, uh, I've been using Zoom for a couple of years for interviewing people, but my father-in-law is now using Zoom. My, my friends who are non-technical are using Zoom. 
Where did Skype miss the goal? Because clearly they'd miss this one like a big one. The verb to Skype doesn't seem to be there anymore. It's now, I'll Zoom you rather than Skype you. How did they miss it? I think that the world has moved on from 2003 when we first created Skype. We're nearly two two decades on and inevitably technologies and, and particularly digital technologies move at a pace. And I don't think we have any digital technologies that have survived two, two decades. Uh, but when I look at you know, what we create in Skype, it was really a platform. And perhaps we didn't even realize back then what a platform was, but we had Skype messaging before Twitter. We had uh, Skype profiles before Friendster and, and, and fa- Facebook. We had messaging before, before WhatsApp. And we had video calling, as you mentioned, before, before Zoom. So we were very, very early. And in many ways, the fact that we were a European tech company that had a multi-billion dollar exit back in the early 2000s, that was an amazing, amazing outcome. Um, and I think has created a, uh, an ecosystem in, in London and, and across Europe, which can trace, its, can trace its roots back to the success that we, that we, that we had at Skype. So why did eBay make such a mess of the acquisition? Because they clearly did. I can see why they wanted it. And they made a really hashtag of uh, PayPal as well. So why did they make such a bad one with Skype? Yeah, I've asked myself the same question uh, over the years. We, as I said, we created these technologies and these platforms a, a, a long time, time, time ago. And I, when I use Zoom now and I use WhatsApp, it, it is interesting because the experience of messaging or video calling it for us is not is is not is not new i, I can't speak to you know what the thinking it was in ebay when they acquired us i i left a year after we were acquired and what i am proud about is we built all of these technologies people were at, at the time 2004 2005 2006 Skype was as ubiquitous then as Zoom or WhatsApp is today. Uh, and as you said, everybody used the verb to Skype. So I think we did create something uh, two, de- two decades ago that everybody used. But as, as I said, two decades is a long time, time ago and, and, te- and, and technologies, in particular dig- digital technologies, move. I think the killer feature of Skype was the free call. That was it. The other features around it weren't, I guess, promoted significantly, or people just didn't realize the value of what they had and they weren't uh, used. Now, one of the things you told me was, and I'm pretty sure I remembered, was that the underlying technology wasn't sold to eBay. So that allowed Nicholas to sell Skype again. How did they do that? I mean, why didn't eBay buy the underlying technology? It's, it's perhaps one of the great conundrums of Europe, European te- technology. Um, and maybe someone should write a book about it at, at some some point. I, I can only assume that eBay were concerned about some of the potential liabilities of, of acquiring what was what was jolted the, the underlying uh, music peer-to-peer uh, network, and uh, and thought that they could rebuild uh, a lot of the, the source code without jolted. But as you said, uh, subsequently, it was acquired by a private equity co- company who bought Skype and, and put it back together with jolted. Uh, and it was subsequently sold to to Microsoft. So uh, another great event for Nicholas and Yanis. Yes. And I wonder, given Web 3.0, what we call distributed apps, the return to -to peer-to-peer, do you still keep in touch with them at all? I wonder if they're going to dust down the old uh, business plan and come up with a peer-to-peer music service again. I think, as you said, there are a lot of use cases now appearing for for peer-to-peer distributed systems that we saw last uh, a lot of hype and attention around Facebook launching Libra as a currency which was based upon distributed ledger te- technology. We saw over the last couple of years, Bitcoin and, and, and other virtual currencies, you know, which are essentially uh, predicated on the same distributed te- technologies, peer-to-peer networks. And I think where there are so many advantages in terms of speed and reliability to these distributed technologies. Inevitably, we are going to see uh, more of it. It creates resilience, privacy. It's fast. Whether it's Nicholas and Yanis that build those or, or fund them, 
I think it's probably more likely to be the latter. Um, all of the Skype team remains very close. I- ironically, we're, we're, we're connected on Facebook, LinkedIn and, and WhatsApp. So we use you know, a lot of the platforms that came after us, but it's a close network and we do all of us keep in touch. Brilliant. Moving on from there, then what really happened? You started your own company, but Jarman. Jarman, that's right, which is an Indian fruit, a wood and a tree. Oh. Jarman was a place where fans of festival films and international films could come and stream films free watching ads or download and own the film for five dollars and it was a platform uh, that we built at that point i'd moved to to san francisco and uh, was working with gorav dylan and we built jarman and we built the platform uh, on a peer-to-peer network so when nicholas and Yanis were doing peer-to-peer tv streaming at juiced jarman oh, yes i remember that now peer-to-peer film streaming and we had licenses from for beautiful films, um, the kind of films you would normally see at a Tribeca or a Sundance or a Cannes film festivals. Um, everything from Bangkok Dangerous, the original Thai film, through to Arab cinema, Spanish cinema, uh, going back to where I went to university, Russian films, as well as you know, people like Penelope Cruz wanting to put their catalogue of films so that their fans could, could see everything that, that they'd done. On, on the German platform. It sounded like a great plan. Maybe again, just too early for that. Too, it was too early. The, the, uh, what, what we found was that there was massive uptake. So the, the demand for this, this type of movie, this film, globally was very significant, but there wasn't enough video ad inventory in the world back in 2008. There was perhaps in the UK and, and, and in the US, but because our, our fans were consuming these movies everywhere from Taipei through to Turkey, there just wasn't enough uh, video uh, ad inventory to make the business model work, the free free with ads and download to own. Having said that, you've got to try a few things to figure out what works. And uh, interestingly, the business model of free with ads or pay for premium uh, cropped up a couple of years later again, and we made it work that time at Spotify. So let's go on to Spotify because, wow, what a great company, another European success story. So how did you get into Spotify? So whilst I was at Skype, apart from being European director, I also was before that responsible for international expansion and business development uh, and was responsible for opening up Skype in China. So we had an investment from Hutchinson Wampoa Group. They were very keen that uh, we look at expanding Skype in, in China and interestingly, at the point of acquisition by eBay, 35% of our users globally were, were in China. Uh, but in order to, to start the, the JV in China, um, we had to figure out that the problem, uh, which was because it's a distributed network, because it's a peer-to-peer system, you need peers for the, the, the Skype network to work. And on day one in China, there were no peers. And so I worked with someone called Daniel Eck, who was very young at the time, but a brilliant peer-to-peer computer engineer, and he created the Supernode network. So we launched Skype China together. And then if you fast forward uh, a few years, uh, he had raised 30 million for, uh, in a series A for, for Spotify. He's a great engineer, great uh, product developer. And he, he said, look, uh, I want to continue to build uh, the best music streaming product the world has ever seen. Uh, so let me focus on the product and you figure out how, how to expand this product, Spotify, internationally and figure out all the deals, get me into as many markets as you can, but do what you've done at Skype and Kayak previously and figure out the deals and figure out the international expansion plan and you do that and I'll figure out the product. Brilliant. Wow. I mean, that must have been an amazing journey because Spotify is now going great guns. I think I w- it would be safe to say it, w- it was a massive rise, a little dip, and then it's gone again recently. I, I was lucky to join um, early and was there for about uh, four years. I launched eight or nine markets, um, France, Spain, <coughs> Netherlands, Finland, uh, and, and finally the, the United States. So my recollection of my time at, at, at Spotify was 
you know, we were launching Spotify across the world, changing the way that people listen, listen to music. Previously, uh, you were either listening to CDs. My children will never know what a CD looks like, right? But, yeah. but uh, quickly, again, technology changes. Or downloading MP3s. Uh, and here we were, were saying to, to people that they could listen to anything in the world instantaneously. Uh, and it changed the way that people consume music. So uh, it, it was great fun. I was traveling three weeks out of four. Uh, so it was, it, you know, by the time my four, four years were up, I was, I, was, <laughs> I was traveling from London to New York and then New York to San Francisco, San Francisco to either Hong Kong or, or, or Singapore on a, on a monthly basis. So circumnavigating the world and God knows what I, you know, my carbon footprint was at, at the time, but four years was, was enough. But I, the team that we built there was, was a, a great fun to work with. They were brilliant. And it was a, a real privilege to be part of early Spotify. Did you get much pushback from the record companies? Was it open arms? Steve Jobs screwed us over. Welcome. Let's have another one. Or was it Steve Jobs screwed us over? We really want to work with you as a new platform. Or was it none of that? I mean, am I putting words into your mouth? No, you know, Steve Jobs arguably wasn't the first person that legged over the music label. Arguably MTV had built a, a, a multi-billion dollar uh, video business before Apple had come along and, and changed the music industry. So I think by the time we at Spotify t- turned up, there were a, a number of instances of where industry-defining changes had happened and value had been created in the music industry where the music labels felt that they had not participated. And I remember being in many, many music label conversations where they were very keen, first of all, to figure out where Spotify and music streaming was was going, and they were in no hurry to let uh, the technology proliferate and didn't necessarily uh, get it for a long time um, and made licensing not as easy as it could be. But you overcame those clearly. Um, on your LinkedIn profile, it talks about you brokering a deal with Facebook. I can't even remember Facebook and Spotify doing anything together. So what was all that about? Um, so uh, you know, you're testing my knowledge of Facebook, but I, do you remember a time when the reason for using Facebook was top left-hand corner, you had photos, you'd share photos. The deal that we ended up doing with Facebook was just below photos, which was the most used part of Facebook, there was Facebook music. I really can't remember that. And you could share, you could share what you were listening on Facebook with your friends. I remember being able to go into my Spotify account and I can still do that today and I can... I can list what my music is currently playing on Spotify and that could have played through into Facebook. Is that what you mean? And it would, back then it was by default. So if you would log in to Spotify through Facebook and then on your Facebook feed, it right. would show everybody what you were listening to. Yes, I remember. And the idea of that was essentially to use Facebook as distribution so that more people would see Spotify and therefore da- download the application. And what that meant was all of a sudden, rather than being an app which was known in parts of Europe, which were just breaking into the United States, suddenly we were able to leverage the full footprint of Facebook globally to distribute and, and, and showcase Spotify. And people were, were seeing what their friends were listen, listening to. And if they clicked on that, they could listen to music on Facebook. But if they wanted to, to listen to, to more music, they would have to download the Spotify application. So it became a massive tool for distribution. And we actually, on the back of that, I think within a couple of months, tripled the number of paying users on, on Spotify. So it was a great partnership. And I know uh, that the, the, there's a relationship between Facebook and, and Spotify and yours even now. Now, famously, people like Taylor Swift pull their catalogue and, and Jay-Z try to do their own thing and cost them a lot of money. Do artists, in your humble opinion, now you're not in Spotify, do they get a fair share of the, the um, revenues that are generated? I, I think you've got to look at this in a number of ways. Streaming music services like Spotify have actually grown the aggregate size of the music pie. And without streaming music, you know, we would not have either the revenues in the industry or the distribution that now artists like Taylor Swift or, or Jay-Z have. 
So I think you know they've got a lot to to thank services like Spotify for. In terms of how the subscription revenue that Spotify charges gets split up, you know, Spotify has to pay both the music labels and the collecting societies that represent the PPL, PPRS, etc. And so and you can look at the accounts and, and you'll see that the vast majority of the subscription after tax goes to those entities. So you know, whilst, whilst Spotify d- d- does make a profit, the labels and the collecting societies collect the vast majority of that revenue. And how that revenue then gets shared from the labels and the collecting societies with the artists that they represent, that's always been something between the artists and, and the labels. You know, there, you know, there are increasingly ways that artists can partner directly with music streaming systems. But you know, the question about do, do artists get paid uh, appropriately by Spotify, the vast majority of them uh, actually get paid by the music label. And, and that we should be asking the question about do artists get paid properly by the labels that, that they work with? Well, interesting you mentioned it because I think uh, Spotify started to sign directly artists to its own platform. Is it becoming a label in its own right? Are they trying to disintermediate the likes of Sony and uh, other companies? Do you see that as a trend? I'm, I'm not privy to the strategy. Uh, <laughs> uh, given, given more about Spotify than I will ever know, just in your external ex- observation, I guess. I think look, music labels have a very, really important role to play in the music industry, not least for finding, nurturing, sponsoring, and, and mentoring new artists. And you know, their, their role should not be uh, diminished. And even in a world that's being disrupted by technology, they, they have a really important uh, role uh, to play. But I think what, what is interesting is outside of music and whether that's in TV, uh, film or podcasting, streaming is definitely becoming uh, a, a te- technology which is wider than music. I have often uh, wondered when you'd be able to pay for a streaming package which includes your films, your TV and your music. And I don't think we're very far away. I, don't well, I think Amazon would call it Prime if, if you... Uh, yeah, may- maybe. I think there are, there are probably going to be some other moves. Uh, people have a limited wallet and i think if you make it really easy for people to 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 find what they want uh and consume what what they want and have have it all bundled together that's probably the right direction of travel but these services had to come in into existence in their own right first before we realized we wanted them yeah i think it's interesting Uh, a lot of bands that i follow now are beginning to play live concerts on twitch for example the the amazon platform Uh, so it's less about watching people play games which i never understand because i'm not a gamer but there's bands that i watch young bands who play out on twitch and then i as a fan join in and i can monetize by paying for the 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 privilege of watching them it's, it's a mini concert before covid and it was great and and it was a great way that bands could do it Going back to Spotify, I think what's interesting is their move into podcasting, diversifying out of music with the acquisition of Joe Rogan. I don't know if you spotted it, but obviously you're busy with Blipper, but they look like they're about to launch a video service as well because they tested Joe Rogan briefly and it came up as a video and then everyone's like, oh, hello, what's that? And it, it went away. So clearly Spotify is going to go into taking on YouTube in the video space. I just think it's an interesting diversification for the company. Video has been part of the platform since the very beginning. It's not something I consume then, so it's passed me by. But it, yeah, it's perhaps you didn't spot it, but it was used in the early days for, for advertising. So a lot of the, the advertising... I paid my subscription to avoid that. It would trigger, would trigger a video codec. Um, so right. it, it's been there for a while. So I, look, you know, I wonder what the most likely combinations are likely to be or whether it's going to be a, a company like uh, Spotify that tries to do uh, TV and video or whether it's a company like Netflix... Well, I think my prediction has been that the two will merge. No comments. <laughs> That's even more interesting than saying something. <laughs> comments, but to go back to your uh, comment about watching you know, some of these bands on Twitch, what I'm really excited about at Blipper is we're talking about 
working with bands uh, and artists such that you can uh, actually see them playing in your living room. So it would look as if they're, they're right there with you. Uh, and so really personalize the, the music experience in AR. So in many ways, you know, development from Spotify to, as you said, to seeing artists play live on Twitch to actually seeing them um, appear like they're right there with you, whether that's in, in, your, in your living room or in your, in your den or in your garden. Going back to Blipper, I think those are the sorts of experiences I think we need to see happen, but at a level where it is intuitive, whether it's through glasses or through another device that we don't know yet, or through our phone. So I, I hope that happens soon. Not of an age where we were voracious users of Snap, but Gen Z uh, population are already uh, using AR day in. And, and day out and stuff. Yes. A really big business. So, uh, you know, technology adoption often happens by finding its first home and often within technology savvy youngsters. And I think that's probably where we are. But we're, we will see in, in the next year or so, as I said, bands and, and music, especially in this situation where we find ourselves now where we can't necessarily go out and enjoy concerts all together, where the concert will come to you. And you'll be able to enjoy it where you are. Let me just say thank you so much for your time. Before I go, look, just remind everyone how they can get a hold of Blipper. Where do they go? What's the website? Sure. Uh, come to www.blipper.com. Download uh, Blip Builder, which is our content authoring, authoring tool. Um, or you can look at some of the, uh, the fun experiences that we've already created by going to our channel on YouTube. Brilliant. And now, <clears throat> I know you've got a, an exciting summer coming up. I, I would love to talk to you again after you've made those big announcements. So uh, good luck in the meantime, and thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Sam. See, see you soon, hopefully. Indeed. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. Don't forget to visit samtalk.technology to discover more great shows. See you next week. Same time, same place.